Being a human is hard. We're each one in about an almost incomprehensible 7 billion other humans who try to make sense of the world around us. That is 7 billion individuals with 7 billion distinct personalities shaped by an uncountable number of influences. It's no wonder why many people believe in conspiracy theories. We're driven by our nature to understand our world, and sometimes this results in developing a simplified answer to a complex question. Even in the face of mounds of contradicting evidence, confirmation bias sometimes wins out, and when people seek like-minded people, they can get caught in an echo chamber filled with an outrageous conspiracy theory. But not all conspiracy theories are fake. I'm fairly certain that the Earth is round and that birds are real, but in this episode of the Some Weird Podcast, we're going to tell you about some equally outlandish conspiracy theories that turned out to be true. Man, these stories are some weird. Welcome to the Some Weird Podcast, a podcast about strange and unusual stories told by us, a sister and brother team hailing from the island of Newfoundland. I'm your co-host, Christy. And I'm your co-host, Barry. Now, in your intro, you talked about 7 million people in the world, so if each person was a dime... How long would a stack of dimes go? If you started in St. John's, you'd probably make it to about Quebec City. Okay. Right. <laughs> and that's the throwback to a way back. What episode was that? I don't even remember, and I don't even know how I got it in my head that that would be a, an efficient measurement of time. But, uh, yes. Time slips, maybe? Possibly. I don't remember. But it was one of my shining moments. <laughs> <laughs> Still talked about to this day, but no, we're not talking about stacked dimes today. We're here to talk about conspiracy theories. We've talked about them in the past that were purposely fake, but in this episode, we're talking about conspiracy theories that were actually true. Yeah, this episode is actually one of the scariest ones that I think we've ever done, in my opinion. Well, let's wait until it's laid down before we say that. I mean, I don't know what's going to be in your story. In my story, if I didn't know that it was true, years ago, I would have been like, there's no fucking way that's real. But then it turns out to be true, and it's like, that is actually quite scary. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. Well, conspiracy theories are definitely a, a mind fuck, for lack of a better term. Sorry, Mom, for swearing. But uh, yeah, l- let's talk about some. Let's get this on the go. But before we do, short announcement. We're actually recording this episode on New Year's Day 2023. Happy New Year's. Happy New Year. On Boxing Day, we actually released two episodes of the Somewhere Podcast. One was the remastered Mumbers episode from season one. We actually also did a brand new episode about some weird Christmas traditions from around the world. So if you want to learn about Icelandic Yule Lads and poop logs, uh, make (laughs) sure you go back and listen to that episode. Uh, Looking at our numbers, about twice as many people listen to the remastered one as the new one. Probably thinking since we only release one new one at a time, uh, there was only one. Yeah, it's usually every two weeks, and a lot of people have their feed set up, so just download the newest episode, so they probably didn't get both dropped in. So uh, here we are thinking we were doing a a nice Christmas favor for everybody, giving you twice to some weird podcasts for your listening pleasure, and we ended up screwing ourselves out of listenership. (laughs) Fucking up our numbers. Uh, Let's get into these uh, conspiracy theories. Let's do it. Here we go. Some stories that we tell in the Some Weird Podcast are more or less standalone stories, right? They happen. They're kind of weird. Hopefully we laugh about them, hopefully you laugh about them, and then we move on with our lives. Others 
they're sort of a comment on the culture or folklore. And those are the fun stories. Or those are the kinds of stories that I think make life more interesting and more fun. But every now and again, we tell a story that we have to contextualize within the time and the circumstances in which they occurred. That is the case for my story for this episode. So before I get into it, I'm going to ask you, Barry, and, and also you, the listeners, to please consider the discipline of history as a continuum of all things leading up to now. And be aware that it's not a straight line from A to B to C, but more of a web woven from major events, societal shifts, people's worldviews, and even pop culture, as I tell you about a conspiracy theory that turned out to be true. This is the story about how the American government dosed unknowing members of the public with drugs in pursuit of figuring out mind control. What? Yes. So <laughs> I was waiting to see what you were going to say, because I know you do not know my story before I start it. Uh, that's a heavy topic. Now, I I want to say you've mentioned this to me in the past in passing. Maybe you mentioned it on a previous episode. I don't know if, if it made air or not, but uh, I do recall you talking to me about it. Probably. But anyway, I know nothing about this, and I can't remember what you said, Dan. I wasn't listening, so. <laughs> you weren't listening great. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully you'll be listening to this one. So we're going to take a look at what was on the go at the time to understand why anyone even thought to make this a thing that you need to figure out in the first place. Okay. So this all started in the early post-World War II era. World War II is probably the most influential event in all of the 20th century. One of my favorite topics, I, I love reading about World War II. I love playing video games. I love playing board games about World War II. It's just a, a generally fascinating topic. It is fascinating. And like... So much stuff happened because of and during World War II that shapes even the way we think today. Yeah, for sure. And we covered perhaps the greatest battle in history of World War II. That was the Battle of Greenland. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the six people. <laughs> yep. Believe it or not, this is only like a 30 to 40 minute podcast episode, hopefully. So I'm just going to take two of the things that were a direct result of World War II. Number one, the Cold War. So the Cold War, a period of tension between capitalist West, communist East, where everyone on the planet thought we were going to be blown up if we had another world war. That's my one sentence description of the Cold War. Okay? Yep. Now, one of the institutions that was established due to the Cold War was the American Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA. Oh, sorry. In my mind, I just thought the CIA was always... Yeah, I thought that was like a declaration of independence. The CIA was created as part of that. Nope. Created specifically due to the Cold War. Okay. In the early days, the CIA was obsessed with the theory of mind control and brainwashing. The latter, brainwashing, is really a term that can safely reside in the realm of science fiction, no matter how hard the CIA tried to make it a thing. But they did believe that you could achieve mind control. This became especially interesting to the CIA after observing that some American POWs from the Korean War were singing the praises of communism, and they didn't even want to return to America. Really? Yes. So the CIA thought they were brainwashed. There's no way they think that way of life is better than our way of life, yeah. Exactly. The CIA thought there's no way an American person would be like, that's a lot better than what we got going on. So... They thought that this could only have been because the bad guys had developed some method or had some drug that could fundamentally break down a person's mind and rebuild it however they wanted. They didn't consider torture 
as why people were thinking that or saying that. And again, in turn, if the bad guys had this kind of knowledge, then we need it now or else the world is going to collapse. This was viewed as both dire and immediate, and it should be accomplished by any means necessary. Now, the second thing that was a direct result of World War II that pertains to this story is the Nuremberg Code. And that came to be as a result of the Nuremberg Trials. After World War II, the rest of the world learned the extent of the atrocities of the Nazi concentration camps, including mad scientists conducting experiments on unwilling human beings. In response, the Allies established a 10-point code of ethics called the Nuremberg Code, and this was to apply to medical research and it should be universally adhered to. The code centers around the rights and freedoms of the people participating in medical research. Generally, it says people must freely volunteer And they must be in the loop as to what's going on. And everything has to be done to preserve and protect the individual. So you can't just do whatever the fuck you want with people because they're people. Makes sense. It's written a little bit more eloquently than that, but that's the (laughs) gist. Those are the rules, and everybody agreed on these rules. You know, so when you say everybody, you mean the United Nations? Yes, everybody agreed. Good guys, bad guys, everybody. But then. If the Russians and the North Koreans and the Chinese, who are now our Cold War enemies, are figuring out mind control, then we have to figure it out too, no matter what. It's for the greater good. Fuck the code that we wrote. (laughs) (laughs) You follow the code except when you don't have to follow the code. Right. Now, this led to one of the most infamous projects in the history of the CIA, and that project was MKUltra. MKUltra was an umbrella project, so it's not one thing. And it had piles and piles of weird sub-projects, including how to make dolphin assassins. Yes. <laughs> how agents can use magic against the enemy. And the subject of this story, which is how to crack the code of mind control. Those aren't jokes. Those were actual projects. Oh, how far did they get in the dolphin one, I wonder? <laughs> I don't know, but I think it's worth looking into. Uh, the assassin dolphin would be a good counterpiece to the uh, dolphin that fell in love with <laughs> what's the name of the house there that time. So. Oh. God. Still my all-time favorite story, I think. Since the CIA is, by its very nature, a covert organization, they could not figure out both the secret to mind control and how to follow all the ethical rules set out in the Nuremberg Code. And since figuring out the methods that they believed our enemies already had was of utmost importance, some of these rules had to be broken. But where to begin? Rewind back to 1938, even before World War II started. A Swiss chemist named Albert Hoffman was in the business of medical research. While trying to develop a drug to help with medical situations like sudden respiratory failure, he synthesized something called lysergic acid diethylamide, a.k.a. acid, a.k.a. LSD. Sandos, or Sandos, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, the lab for which Hoffman worked, started to market this drug to researchers all around the world, And they were actually making some headway with regards to using it to treat mental disease and alcoholism. The CIA, though, thought that it could have another use, mind control. So they purchased the entire world supply of LSD from Sandoz in the early 1950s for the grand total of 240,000 bucks. They own all the acid in the world. What a trip that must have been. My son. So theoretically, they could have stomped out acid right then. I guess Buddy could have made more. They could have had him whacked. Right. It's not like it's something that occurs naturally and then once it's all gone, it's all gone. You make it. All right. So that's step one. Get all the asset. Check. Now, step two was to see what it could do. 
This was a lot more difficult than writing a check to a Swiss lab. The guy in charge of Project MK Ultra was also a chemist, but his name was Cindy Gottlieb, and he later earned the unofficial title of Poisoner-in-Chief and the Black Sorcerer. <laughs> Some good handles. <laughs> Something to be proud of. Under Gottlieb was an agent named George Henry White. Now, White was a very interesting man. He was a really lucky guy and that he really enjoyed his job. It's not many of us do, but he really enjoyed it. But it's too bad that his job actually involved dosing non-consenting human subjects with LSD just to see what happened. White was in charge of the CIA initiative under MKUltra, which I said is an umbrella project, called Operation Midnight Climax. <laughs> Everyone does a bunch of LSD and then they do Midnight Climax? Yes, they do. Okay. While many secret projects are given names that have nothing to do with the project itself, it makes it more secret and harder for people to figure out, sort of like titles of Led Zeppelin songs. This one was actually <laughs> aptly named because under Project Midnight Climax, the CIA set up brothels in both San Francisco and New York City as real-world laboratories. Now, what would they do? Patrons of these houses of ill repute were secretly given LSD in their drinks by the sex workers who were working for the CIA. While they were both tripping and busting balls, the operatives, a.k.a. the ladies, would see how much information the men would willingly give up, even if it was against their own self-preservation. The hope here for this very unethical study was to prove that an individual under the influence of LSD and whose guards are lowered further by sexual activity would be prone to give up secrets and or be influenced to act in ways that they would normally never consciously choose. Okay, so were these subjects, uh, I'll use that term lightly, were these patrons of, of these facilities, are they like military personnel or the nope. governor official? They were just Jimmy Joe off the street. Regular ass Johns looking for hookers. Regular Johns, that's right, yeah. So, I mean, they didn't really have any secrets. Oh, well, I guess they could have. You don't know. I mean, they, they could have been whomever, but. Oh, yeah, they could have. They weren't marks that were like someone that would have, nope. I don't know, say, secret military files and see if they can get it out of them by. Nope. By getting them stoned and banging them. Exactly. The information in this experiment was inconsequential. The experiment was to see if they would give up any information. It didn't matter what they said. Okay, that makes sense. So now, this is very, like I said, an unethical experiment. But if it proved to be true, then the same methods could be applied to spies of foreign or even domestic enemies. And as I mentioned before, White really enjoyed his job. So much so that he would watch all the activity in the brothel from a secret room hidden behind a two-way mirror. Not only that, he had a portable toilet installed in the oubliette where, <laughs> where he'd knock back a few martinis, which may or may not have been spiked with LSD, and sit on his portable toilet drinking alcohol and eating junk food as he watched all the activity in the brothel. That's a pretty good gig, sitting there watching live porn while you're taking a dump. <laughs> he was meeting all of his goals. Um, but I think even a most basic grade five student would be able to recognize that this method does not follow the generally agreed upon <laughs> rules of scientific experimentation. Actually, it yeah. seems more of a entertainment for White himself. Yeah, no, I think the Nuremberg Code was followed. It was not. Later, when all of this came out, White was interviewed, of course, by many people, and he was credited with saying this, quote, 
I toiled wholeheartedly in the vineyards because it was fun, fun, fun. Where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, kill, cheat, rape, and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the All-Highest? I mean, there's worse things you can do for a living, I suppose. I suppose. But these experiments were not only conducted in CIA-funded brothels, and they weren't only on American citizens. North of the border at McGill University, experiments were being funded by a CIA front organization called the Society for the Investigation of Human Ecology. So in Canada? Yes. Here at McGill, which is in Montreal, Dr. David Ewan Cameron was already doing research on breaking down and building up the human mind. He was a world-renowned psychiatrist, and he was actually the president of the Canadian Psychiatric Association the American Psychiatric Association, and the chairman of the World Psychiatric Association. And he was working at McGill University. For those of you who don't know, McGill is one of the top universities in the whole world, and sometimes it's referred to as the Harvard of Canada. So you could say that he was high up in his field. Well, he, he ran all the societies. He did. <laughs> but even super famous super scientists need funding, and the CIA happily provided that resource. I'm not sure if Dr. Cameron knew that the Human Ecology Project was the CIA, but he did know that he was conducting experiments on Canadian citizens without their explicit consent. Dr. Cameron's goal was to fully break down a person's mind and rebuild it in a completely new way. This would allow a doctor to remove all the trauma and all the bad shit that caused psychological problems and start over from scratch to create a new and theoretically healthy personality. Well, that's a better goal than it is to try and steal the secrets out of people. It sounds more benevolent, but I don't know. Theoretically, the CIA's position on this was that if it was possible, then you could create whatever kind of personality that you wanted. So they can make a super soldier who would act on orders alone without regard for anything else, or develop a Manchurian candidate who's an assassin who doesn't even know that they've been programmed to be an assassin. Yeah, I mean, like, for some people, I guess the, the heartache that they've had in their life would be part of who they are, right? So mm -hmm. taking that memories away would change who that person really is. So unless the person actually consented to do so, then that's where the ethics come in, I'm, I'm sure. Well, that's exactly where the ethics come in. So how did Dr. Cameron propose to break down a person and rebuild them up again? He developed a method called psychic driving. This involved dosing patients with LSD and other psychedelics <laughs> and then putting them to sleep for days or weeks at a time. While they were asleep, he would play a continuous loop of messages through a modified football helmet during the sleep session. After days or weeks, they would wake up, then they get electroshock therapy, and then they'd be evaluated to see if their minds were erased. This is his experiment. It's so fucked up. What's the success rate? Well, I'll get to that. First of all, where did the patients come from? Well, I guess the woods. <laughs> they did not come from the woods. They were people who voluntarily sought okay. psychiatric help for issues like anxiety, depression, postpartum depression, which are all today things that we consider pretty common and also yeah. pretty treatable, right? Absolutely. Yeah. This was back in the 50s and 60s. So they understood that they would be going to get treatment for these conditions that were both innovative and by a, probably the top psychiatrist in the whole world. And they really thought that the goal of their care was to cure them of their anxiety, depression, and postpartum depression. They did not 
sign up for depatterning or to be test subjects for the CIA. And since they did not willingly volunteer for the medical testing, Dr. Cameron and the CIA blatantly violated these people's rights under the Nuremberg Code. Ironically, Dr. Cameron himself was one of the world-renowned psychiatrists who participated in the psychological evaluations of the German war criminals during the Nuremberg trials. So he wrote the fucking code, but still violated it. Still wasn't following it, yeah. Yeah. Do as I say, not as I do. Exactly. So it's pretty clear, right? Experiments at McGill University were blatantly unethical. No, that's right. But did they work? I mean... (laughs) That's the question. That's what I said. What was the success rate? Yeah. (laughs) Nope. They did not work. (laughs) Not one patient was cured. Not one patient became a Manchurian candidate. And nobody was ever the same afterwards. Some of the patients were reduced to childlike states and required care for the rest of their lives. I say fucked them off even worse. Yeah. It's like Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Some of them were shells of people with no memories, no sparks of their former personalities, and absolutely nothing good came from these experiments. No, it doesn't sound like it. Well, I guess they reshaped those people, but not in the way they wanted to. Yeah, they successfully erased all the stuff, but they didn't build anything back up again. And after MKUltra was exposed, some of the survivors and the family members sued the CIA for unethical experiments. Did they get a big pay? They must have. No. All the LSD you can take. (laughs) An undisclosed and confidential settlement was reached, so they never actually went to court. And in other words, we don't know who took responsibility. They got hush money. Yeah. And we don't know what that was. Like We don't know how much they were compensated. So the settlement, just like MKUltra itself, it's all a secret. Learning more about the CIA's projects and reach, I thought about the common meme trope nowadays about how the FBI is monitoring your text messages. But I wonder if this is a clever deflection by the CIA, because it seems like that institution would be far more likely to have motivation and precedence for spying on regular citizens. But anyway... That's the story about how a government institution actually tried to develop methods of mind control by experimenting on unsuspecting human subjects. That is crazy. But what's scary is, what else did they do? Or what are they doing now? (laughs) The monitoring podcasts, for example. They probably are. That's a very interesting story about how the government tried to uh, control people's minds. I'm going to tell you a story here about big tobacco and what lengths they tried to go through to try to prove to everybody that smoking was not hazardous to your health. And that was a long-standing theory that big tobacco companies denied for years and years and years. But as we all know now today, obviously, cigarettes are not good for your health. Back in the day, everybody smoked. That's my first line. Back in the day, everyone smoked. <laughs> all right, we have to take a longer hiatus from the podcast because we're starting to fill in each other's stories. That's right. But you're right. It's a thing people did. Yeah. But, like, you'd watch Johnny Carson or, or the newscast back in the 50s, and they're smoking cigarettes on TV. All hand-smoking. Yeah. Well, as we're discussing now, it's not certainly not socially accepted nowadays. It was back in the day. It's banned in most public places. And even here in Canada, if you want to go to the store to buy cigarettes, they're not even allowed to display them. They're behind these counters that you can't see. Back in the 20s, there was famous pictures of cyclists during the Tour de France smoking, and the thought was, you know, having a cigarette would open up their lungs and help them ride up the hills in the Tour de France, right? You just sent me a picture about a Chinese guy running a marathon and smoking. Chain smoked while he ran a marathon in three hours and 20 minutes. Put us to shame. Come on, buddy. 
Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Today we noted health risks associated with smoking, and a lot of the measures have been taken to try to discourage smoking, right? All cigarette packs have warning labels. There's restrictions on advertising. Doing research for this, I was watching advertisements of the Flintstones smoking. Oh, my God. The Flintstones used to be brought to you by Winston Cigarettes. Did it really? Yeah, yeah apparently. Oh, my God. Had or sold, even. Like I said, we discussed, you can't even have them displayed anymore. So there's all these things. That's not always the way it was. For years, people believed smoking wasn't hazardous to your health at all. The manufacturers of tobacco did pretty much everything in their power to get people to believe the cigarettes were safe, even as evidence was uncovered to the contrary. After all, saying your product is slowly killing your customers is probably not a very good uh, business <laughs> plan, right? No. So how long did the tobacco companies know the effects of smoking, and how long did they try to keep the information from the public? That's the question. I guess the answer to the second one, they're kind of still doing it, right? But when did it come from conspiracy theory to actual truth? Mm-hmm. What's interesting is lung cancer was once a rare disease, so much so that medical professionals would consider dealing with a lung cancer patient as a once-in-a-lifetime oddity. Really? Yeah. In the late 19th century, there was an explosion in the popularity of cigarettes. Uh, oh. It was mass-marketly appealed. You know, Due to that, it became a fun, cool thing to do. As this happened, all of a sudden there was a rise in the very rare lung cancer disease. So people started thinking about, okay, what's going on here? So in 1898, a medical student named Herman Rotman, not Rothman the Cigarette Company, but Rotman, began working on a correlation and the rise of various cancers and tumors in the workers of the cigarette industry. He actually believed it wasn't the smoking, it was actually the dust that was made from the tobacco that was the health issue. Okay. Certainly by the 1920s, there was an undeniable rise in the frequency of lung cancer. Medical professionals were puzzled, and they are trying to find answers. One of the beliefs were from many people is that cigarette smoking was a big cause of it. That was believed by some, but certainly not the majority. Other theories were asphalt from newly tarred roads. You know, 1920s, the automobiles getting on the go and were paving all the roads and all that. Air pollution from industrial manufacturing. Uh, effects from the Spanish flu, because again, this is right around the time when the Spanish flu was named. They're thinking that uh, it was an, a side effect of that. And poison gas exposure from World War One. I'm sure all of those things contributed, right? Yeah, but... nothing towards cigarettes, right? Right. But despite these other theories, many thought the cigarettes and their mass appeal was the best hypothesis to follow. There were several studies done to try to link smoking with the rise in lung cancer. In the 1930s, a gentleman by the name of Hans, I'm sorry, Franz, not Hans, Franz. <laughs> was he there to pump you up? That's <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, Franz Hermann Huller. He published a study comparing 86 smokers to a similar number of non-smokers. So basically he had two control groups. He had the smokers and the non-smokers. And the study concluded that smokers had a much higher percentage of health issues. And these studies were done throughout the 40s and 50s. They all concluded the same thing. And it was a very conclusive one done in the 1950s by two gentlemen named Richard Dahl and Brantford Hill. They had two groups of people of similar sex, similar age, similar race, similar occupations over a period of several years. So one group was the smokers, one group was the non-smokers. And the study showed there was an undeniable parallel between smoking and cancer. And they concluded that people who smoke 35 or more cigarettes a day, which is a shitload of cigarettes oh my in my God. view. That's like... Chain like, smoking. Pretty much. Yeah. You know, I guess 35 was the number they went with. Would be 40 times more likely to die from lung cancer in their lifetime. This is great work that's being done and people are beginning to question the relative safety of cigarette smoking. But how widely available was this information? How many people actually believed the results of the study? So if you're doing a study like this and it's posted in a journal that's read by 2,000 people, how's that really getting out to the general public, right? Right. Even if it did make it to the media, you know, people would just dismiss it as fake news. Certainly the pandemic has shown us that many people don't believe anything that's reported in the media. And like you said in your intro, you get a bunch of like-minded people believing like-minded things, they're going to believe what they want to believe, right? Yeah, that's true. So in 1954, Gallup got involved and they did a poll to see what the general public believed regarding cigarettes and the link to cancer. 
41% of individuals believed that it did. Another way to put that is 59 people didn't believe it. I mean, I don't know how many people were smoking versus weren't smoking, and how many of those 41% were non-smokers versus smokers. In 1960, Gallup did another poll, but this time they went with medical doctors. Of the doctors they polled, only one-third of the doctors agreed that smoking was hazardous to your health. Wow. And of those that responded, 43% that they smoke on a regular basis, and an additional 5% said they smoke on a casual basis. Basically, half the doctors were smokers. Wow. If only one-third of the medical community believes it's harmful, it's easy to understand why the general public didn't believe the findings of these results. Based on all this, though, there was definitely no doubt in the scientific community that smoking can cause health problems. Not everyone was on board yet, but people were gradually becoming more and more convinced. This presented the tobacco companies with a problem. It's not good PR to find out that your product that you're manufacturing and selling is killing your customers over time, and they need to come up with a strategy to deal with this bad publicity. In 1953, the CEOs of several competing tobacco companies met at the Plaza Hotel in New York to devise a strategy. So they enlisted the help of John Hill. He was the president of some public relations firm. Hill said that tobacco companies could not simply deny the scientific studies completed on the effects of smoking, but instead present alternative scientific evidence to show that smoking was not hazardous to your health. He felt that people would believe scientific data. So if you just call it witchcraft or whatever, it would hurt their cause. If you present similar data to the contrary of what these people are finding, then many people would believe that, right? Well, he's saying the age-old thing, fight fire with fire. Basically, yeah. So his thought was if you can confuse the public with conflicting evidence to support their side of the argument, it would cause confusion and doubt in the marketplace, and people will continue on crushing the darts. So, <laughs> yep. so his strategy was for the tobacco companies to embrace the research, provide funding for more, and show that they're taking an active approach in the collection of scientific data and the effects of smoking. He wanted to show that the tobacco companies were not running from the science and, in fact, embracing it, and show that there was nothing to hide and cigarettes are safe to consume, and the science will ultimately prove that fact. They identified doctors or researchers that were skeptics of the link between cancer and cigarettes and used that to exploit that in their research. Are PR people the worst people in the world or what? Oh, yeah. They're, just, they're spin doctors, right? And they said, what little nugget can we take and twist to make it work for us, right? That's yeah. what they do. Hill sent to identify all critics, add them to their newly created Tobacco Industry Research Committee. And this was the group that was created in order to do research on the effects of smoking. They began collecting quotes from medical professionals that showed doubt between the link, and the research committee could control the information being sent out and only share information that concluded smoking wasn't bad for you. Again, it's certainly not hard to come up with proper information when there's bias like this, but the appearance of a research group with medical professionals would make it look unbiased and legit, right? Yeah. So the plan was embrace the science but control the narrative and confuse the public. And this case actually show, you know, how influential a PR company can be. So when this committee was created, the tobacco companies collectively ran ads in newspapers across the U.S. And these ads became what was known as the Frank Statement. And this is what it was. We accept an interest in people's health as a basic responsibility, paramount to every other consideration in our business. We believe the products we make are not injurious to health. We always have and always will cooperate closely with those whose task it is to safeguard the public health. So there you go. That's what they came out and said. It's hard to put myself in that time to know like what people were thinking or whatever, but this is so angering to hear right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just the way they, they did it, right? And especially what we know now and how many people died from cigarette consumption over the years, right? This committee was much more of a vehicle of PR than it was an actual scientific group. Their research had been broad, basic nature about cancer in general, but not the link between cancer and cigarettes. The man who became the director of the TIRC was a guy by the name of W.T. Hoyt, and he had no scientific experience whatsoever. Okay. 
In the early months of the operation, Paul Han of American Tobacco and Parker McComas of Philip Morris served as acting chairs. When they were appointed, there was a press release that was sent out, and this is what it said. It is an obligation of the Tobacco Industry Research Committee at this time to remind the public of these essential points. Number one, there's no conclusive scientific proof of a link between smoking and cancer. Number two, medical research points to many possible causes of cancer. And number three, the millions of people who derive pleasure and satisfaction from smoking can be reassured that every scientific means will be used to get all the facts as soon as possible. Oh my God, is he so angry? I don't like your story at all. <laughs> I'm sorry, I hate your story. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I like your story, but it's just, my God. What year, I'm sorry, was this right now? We're in like the 1950s. 1950s. We're all the way back then, okay. The first scientific director of the TIRC was a noted biologist, geneticist, uh, by the name of Clarence Cook Little. And he came to the position as aggressive and uncompromising skeptic of the uh, link, and he believed that most cancers were as a result of genetics. But again, he had a great scientific pedigree and was well chosen from a public relations perspective, but not in an actual unbiased scientific perspective. So again, blurring the boundaries between industrial public relations and academic science was critical to the industry's interests. So in the first year of the operation, the committee's budget was a million dollars. And almost all of that went to the PR company, advertising administration of costs. Nothing really went to research at first. Um, they settled into a programming of funding research principally on the basic science of cancer with little or no relevance to the critical questions associated with the medical risk of smoking. So they had a, a scientific advisory board that was made up of mostly academic researchers, and they conducted peer reviews of grant proposals after they had been carefully screened by staff. So again, these people are handpicked, and they always learn to look at for people that were skeptics of the link. In February of 58, a number of these uh, scientific advisory board members communicated that they were disturbed by a misunderstanding of the relationship between the committee and, and the uh, scientific advisory board. They expressed concerns about the public statements that were made by the TIRC. Basically, they were put in an awkward position of unwittingly endorsing everything that they said. It was like they were guilty by association, for lack of a better term. In this way, the tobacco industry managed to sustain the widespread perception of an active and highly contested scientific controversy into the 1960s, despite overwhelming evidence and scientific consensus that smoking caused serious disease. So again, they said, you know, we got our people, we're working on it, we're doing all the tests, we're doing all the research we can, and once we figure out if there's a link or not, if, and there's been no proof that there was, we'll let everybody know, right? There were certainly skeptics, and there's a lot of people that believed that smoking did cause harmful effects, but there was never a consensus between the medical community. Some people believed it, some people didn't. And with each passing year, skepticism concerning the relation between smoking and cancer was increasingly dominated by industry resources and public media. The TIRC marks one of the most intensive efforts by an industry to derail independent science in modern history. So basically they created this whole committee in order to try to disprove scientific facts. Anytime the TIRC issued a press release, the uh, PR company would initiate a personal contact. So they, again, as a PR company, they had contacts throughout media sources all over the United States. And every time they sent out a release, staffers repeated several key themes. First, they would note that the industry completely understood important public responsibilities. They would affirm the industry was deeply committed to investigating all the scientific questions relevant to resolving the controversy. Third, they urged skepticism regarding statistical studies. Finally, they offered members of the media a long list of independent skeptics to consult to ensure balance in their presentations. So again, spin, 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 right? Yeah. So they had a policy that basically said, let no major unwarranted attack go on unanswered. They'd make every effort to have the answer the same day. So if a study came out and said that we have another link to prove cigarettes cause cancer, they'd have a press release ready to go. Either that day or the next edition. 
And again, they'd always harp on, we're working on getting to the truth. So they've successfully produced uncertainty in the face of a powerful scientific consensus. So long as the uncertainty could be maintained, the industry could always say that this is not proven. Uh, without their claims of no proof and doubt, companies would be highly vulnerable to two crucial venues, regulatory policies and litigation. So without regulatory intervention, some smokers turned to the courts for redress. And by 1964, there was more than 30 lawsuits accusing the industry of negligence and other criminal wrongdoing. So in their work to control the science, the companies have also found that they secured considerable advantages in the realms of law, media, and public opinion. This was all dependent on maintaining notions of controversy, uncertainty, and in doubt. The PR work that they did was a success. The first year that they were in existence, the TIRC, the sales of cigarettes went from $369 billion to $488 billion in one year. That's a staggering number. It is, yeah. For years, there were studies and there was counter-studies, but 1964 proved to be a major blow to the industry. In 1964, the Surgeon General issued a report on the effects of smoking. So this report was broadcast live on TV and had conclusions that were almost entirely focused on the negative effects of cigarette smoking. Number one, cigarette smokers had a 70% increase in age-correlated mortality rate. Cigarette smoke was the primary cause of chronic bronchitis. A correlation between smoking, emphysema, and heart disease. A causative link between smoking and a 10 to 20-fold increase in the occurrence of lung cancer. And a positive correlation between pregnant women who smoke and underweight newborns. All the way back in 1964. For some reason in my mind, it was a lot later than this. Yeah. So, and again, the Surgeon General, he was a former smoker, and he, you know, was almost embarrassed, I guess, to come up with these things, saying that, you know, I supported this for so many years, and here I am now. Again, tobacco companies continue to insist that this case against smoking was unproven. They also recognize it was becoming increasingly difficult for them to suggest that they were supporting independent research on smoking health, given their financial stake in the outcome. They tried to create a perception of independence from the tobacco companies, and after the Surgeon General issued a report, they changed their name of their the TIRC to something else. Took tobacco out of it to try and distance itself from it. Okay. And from 1964 onward, the tobacco industry frequently made reference to the fact that qualified scientists challenged the evidence that smoking caused disease. Many of their so-called independent scientists were recruited and had their research programs supported by the tobacco industry. The tobacco company conspiracy to manufacture false controversy about smoking and health was summarized in a 1972 tobacco industry memorandum. I'm not sure how this got leaked out or whatever, but at some point this got leaked out. And they had a strategy consisting of three parts for their cigarette marketing. Okay. A, was creating doubt about the health charge without actually denying it. So they would never deny it. They'd always challenge it. Right, okay. B, advocating the public's right to smoke without actually urging them to take up the practice. Okay. Three, encouraging objective scientific research is the only way to resolve the question of the health hazard. Man, this is just like... Today, when you'll see fucking bullshit on, like, Facebook or whatever, like, do your own research. It's basically exactly what it is. And they're asked these questions, and they just give non-answers. Like, well, you know, it's not proven to be true. And, you know, Dr. Ralph Cramden uh, of... uh, (laughs) Of the bus Of the bus, sorry. (laughs) Says that uh, he has evidence to say that it's not harmful, right? So that's basically what they did. Yeah. Uh, so these internal documents show how the tobacco companies deliberately confused the public debate about smoking and health and creating, uh, supporting research organizations that were never really interested in discovering the truth about whether or not smoking was the cause of disease. It's horribly evil, but also deviantly smart. It is. And this whole thing was like a case study on how to run public relations to for your benefit type thing, right? I'm not telling you what to think, but if you were going to think on your own, you should probably think like this. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Tobacco companies continued to combat the ever-growing public perception and scientific evidence regarding the effect of smoking on your health. Really to this day, I guess, right? They did officially have to come out and admit it at one point. 
Okay. But uh, they were very successful at controlling the narrative for a long period of time. But finally, in 2006, the courts ruled that companies systematically defrauded the American people by lying for decades about, among other things, the health effects of smoking and their marketing to children. The big tobacco companies were forced to run ads and admit to the following truths. Cigarette companies intentionally designed cigarettes with enough nicotine to make them addictive. More people die from smoking every year than murder, AIDS, suicide, drugs, car crashes, and alcohol combined. All cigarettes cause cancer, lung disease, heart attacks, and premature deaths. Light, ultra light, and low tar cigarettes, all that, they're all still unsafe. And there's no safe level of exposure to secondhand smoke. In the end, though, even though they're considered hazard to your health, they're not banned. They're still a legal thing, and I'm sure smoking numbers have gone down over the years. But, the, you know, the fact of the matter is government makes a shitload of money on taxes from cigarettes. And for that reason, you'll never see them disappear, right? Right. But, yeah, that's what the big tobacco companies did. They decided to come up with a way to make it look like they were doing research to contradict the research that was being done. And for many years, they successfully confused the public as to whether or not it was safe or not. And even in 2006, when they had to admit that, there was all these fighting in the courts forever about, you know, what words they could say and couldn't say. And they didn't want the word truth in the ad and all this kind of stuff. The extent that they went to to try to confuse the public, and and they knew about it, and they they knew the information, but in order to keep selling their products, because I guess in the end it's all about the Albany dollar and, you know, I would believe if people want to smoke and they have all the information, you, you go have at it. But uh, right. to deliberately try to confuse someone to say something's safe when it's not, that's a very unethical thing to do, right? And that's what they did, and they did it for a long time. And I'm sure they're still doing it to this day. Yeah, I mean, it's false advertising. It wasn't that long ago that, like, they were a big backer of sporting events, like the Players Light race car team and all that, and they're not allowed to do that anymore, right? All that got banned. There were ads in, in magazines. I, I remember that in the 2000s. They, they got banned from that. I mean... Yeah, they used to be on television, billboards. You don't see any of that anymore. How do they get new customers, I wonder, if they're not really allowed to advertise? Who knows? Maybe they're sending uh, representatives to the schools. Who knows? I mean, even in television and stuff, you don't really see it. In movies, you don't really see people smoking that much no, anymore. Unless it's a Tarantino movie. But Well, yeah. <laughs> apples. That's the yeah. name of the cigarette in the Tarantino yeah. world. That's right. A pack of apples. But that's the story of how uh, our conspiracy theory that cigarettes cause cancer, which was proven to be a scientific fact, and how the big tobacco companies tried to hide that fact for years and years before they finally, in 2006, had to admit it. All right, so that's another episode. But before we get to our regular conclusion, I just wanted to give a plug out to uh, another podcast. It's called Fireside Canada. It's a fantastic podcast. I can't recommend it enough. And recently, Chrissy actually was a guest voice for one of the stories that uh, they did on a recent episode. And I'm going to be doing a guest voice on one coming up as well. It's a great podcast about uh, Canadian folklore, and I highly suggest you check it out. Similar themes, different presentation. He does an excellent, nicely produced job, David Williams. He's done a story recently about the Newfoundland Ferries, which was really well done. You should go check it out. If you like what we do, you'll definitely like that one as well. Definitely. Getting back to our conclusion, there you have it. Weird stories about true conspiracy theories. Your story made me angry. And normally your stories make me happy, even if they're terrible, (laughs) because they're funny. This is not a funny story. It was not a funny episode. It's definitely a a little bit different than uh, what we normally do. We're normally talking about foolish stuff, but here we are talking about, you know, how the tobacco companies defrauded the public for years and how the CIA was drugging people for years, so... Well, I think it's part of our DNA to be able to find humor in things. Exactly. It's hard to find something funny in this, but anyway, that's it. That's all you can do. You know, what do you guys think about these stories? You can share your ideas with us at somewhere podcast at gmail.com. Or on the Twitter at somewhere pod. 
or our website, somewerdpodcast.com. Or we're also on Instagram, which I'm using a little bit more now than the Twitter. Somewerdpod, I think. Okay. If you look up Somewhere Podcast on the Instagram machine, you'll find it. Hopefully. If you haven't already done so, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen so you'll never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed this episode and you want to help us out, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen so that others can discover us. Don't forget to go back and listen to our Yule Lads and Poop Log episode, which I think a lot of people did miss. Sorry about that. I fucked it up. Take full responsibility, unlike the tobacco companies. Um, but don't be afraid <laughs> to tell a friend about the Some Weird Podcast. These stories are some weird, by Some weird. Hello. Want to say something? You can just be on the podcast. Say whatever you want. I can talk. Yeah, go ahead. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Hi, Uncle Barry. I kind of feel weird. It feels weird. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You done? Yep. Bye. Say something funny for the outtakes. No. Okay. I said, say something funny for the outtakes, and he said no. Uh, okay. <laughs>